Well, so I want to ask you as we kind of continue in worship that you would pray for yourself, that you would hear the word well, and that you would pray for me, that I would speak it well, and that we would be encouraged together, and that we would hear the Lord together, and we would hear and obey today. So today we are continuing on in Genesis. Uh, We're in Genesis chapter 16 today. And I want to back up just a little bit to orient ourselves where we are in Genesis 16. Uh, Back to Genesis 12. We see this pattern beginning of God's promise and then Abram's response of faith, followed by Abram's faltering in faith. God makes a promise. God always is the one that initiates. Abram responds in faith and is called the man of faith throughout Scripture. And yet he has a response of faltering as well. And I think there's a lot for us to identify with with Abram. So in in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we see God's promise. Really the great commission in the Old Testament to make his name great. To bless those that bless him. To curse those that curse him. And we see in verse 3, Abram has a response of faith. So Abram went. He believed God. But then... He and Sarah get to Egypt and he begins to falter and says, tell them you're my sister so they won't kill me. We see later on, God rescues him and gives him peace for a while. And then after he and Lot separate, Lot gets in trouble and he goes and and rescues Lot very valiantly, very courageously. And then he has this encounter with Melchizedek. This worship response to God by giving him a tenth of all that he has. This great faith response. He says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, the most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. And right after that, we begin to see his faith falter a little bit. God comes to him again and makes him a promise that he is his shield. His reward will be great. Tells him to turn toward the heaven and look and see all the stars. And if he can number him, Number them, that's how many his descendants will be. And Abram has faith. And in verse 6 it says, He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I believe that's where we see Abram's salvation in the Old Testament. That's We're going to see later that's the same faith response that we're called to have. And yet as we get into Genesis 16 today, we see Abram falter again. We get... We looked in in Genesis 15 last week. We saw this this wonderful covenant ceremony that God had with Abram where he put Abram into a deep sleep. And God himself made the covenant. God himself said, I will keep the covenant. Abram, this is not yours to keep. I will walk down the middle. I will be the one that keeps both sides of the covenant. And yet, Abram falters in his faith later. So this passage... If, if this were a movie, it would not be a family-friendly movie. Um, if, this, if you were part of Abram's family and you met somebody new, this would not be the first thing that you told them about your family. This would be one of those stories that you saved until much, much later. <laughs> but it's another reminder for us that the, the characters that we see in the Scripture are not heroes for us to emulate, but they're mirrors for us to see ourselves in. As Josh said a few weeks ago, they're not models for morality, but they're mirrors for identity. For us to see how do we identify with these people and what can we learn from their experience? How do we follow the Lord more closely? In fact, as I look at a lot of Abram's life, he is called the man of faith in Scripture. But I, I 
default to uh, one of my favorite philosophers who might describe him this way. Uh, Charles Barkley would say, Ernie, that's a terrible knucklehead move. Terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> because there's so many things in his life that you just kind of scratch your head and then you say, but, but I've, I might do the same thing. So we want to see how we can lit, walk more faithfully today as we look at the life of Abram. So the summary, two sentences I want to, I guess, kind of sum this whole passage up in and then, and then we'll walk through it. Abram and Sarah's attempt to bring about God's promise by their own means had disastrous consequences in their lives and for generations to come. But God provided for Hagar in her distress, and God kept his covenant with Abram. That's the big picture of where we're going. That's what we're going to see in this passage. Maybe a simpler way to say it, the bumper sticker version of that. God doesn't need our help to accomplish his plans. Or maybe God is not your co-pilot. God is not sitting in heaven saying, help me help you. So Genesis 16 is divided really into two kind of natural parts, one through six and then seven through 16. Um, And I want to look at them that way and uh, read them and then kind of come back and make some observations. So the first thing that we're going to see in verses one to six is that when we attempt to accomplish God's plans by worldly means, it always produces disaster. I'm going to read one through six or one through six for us. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And by the way, this is, we're going to see in verse 3, this is 10 years later after chapter 15. This is not right after, okay? Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. All right, there's a lot relationally happening here. There's a big problem that we see in verse 1. All right, God has again promised Abram that there will be a child of promise. You will have descendants more than you can number. But we're told in verse 1, Sarai had borne him no children. They're getting old. Um, the narrative in verse in chapter 16 is the first in a series of, of stories that we'll see throughout the rest of Genesis that portray this, this tension over the delay of God's promise. The expectation that God's going to do it now, and yet God has not done it now. And so, I don't know about you, if, you're, if you like to wait. I know in our house... When I tell our kids that we're going to go for a surprise after you clean your room or whatever, the questions do not stop until I tell them what the surprise is. They want to know now, 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 now. What are we going to do? We want to know what our next career move is. We want to know what our next relational move is. We want to know what the future holds, right? And we want it now. And God has not given that to Abram. Abram was 75 when he departed for Haran after the promise in chapter 12, 1 to 3. 
And then 10 years later, he's still waiting. And even though we see God's promise to him in in chapter 15, it hasn't happened yet. And we'll see later in this passage, Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael is born. So he's going to wait 10 more years, almost 11 more years. We're going to see later on in Genesis, he's going to be 99 when God gives him the covenant of circumcision. And he's going to be 100 when Isaac is born. So you have to learn this experience of waiting on the Lord. And that's a very uncomfortable experience for most of us. So what about you? How, how long are you willing to wait on God's promise? How many hours or weeks or months or years are you waiting to, willing to wait on God's promise? Well, Abram and Sarah weren't willing to wait. And so they come up with a human solution in verses 2 and 3. And Sarah's solution to this promise drew from the social customs of the day. It was not unusual at all for the people around them to have a servant to be given as a second wife. And so she did what seemed natural. She did what what other people around them were doing, what people had done for years and years. They came, remember, from Ur, which is in the Iraq area. They're now in Canaan. It was done all the way from Ur, all the way through Canaan. It was a common thing, but it wasn't God's plan. Because God said in Genesis, remember, one man, one woman, together. They will be one flesh, not three together, but, but two. And so there's this note of frustration in Sarah's speech. Look at verse 2. She says, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's kind of like what Adam said in Genesis 3, right? Lord, you gave me this woman. He's blaming it on God. So now we're going to have to come up with a plan to make this right. And so while we are somewhat shocked, maybe in our sensibilities and in our culture that they decided to invent sister wives at this moment, it's not something that was new. It was something that was they were just acquiescing to what the culture came up with, what the culture around them was doing. Let me ask you a question. Your culture, your domain that you're in has a culture. Your workplace has a culture. Your profession has a culture. Your school has a culture. Your family has a culture. Do you just absorb that culture? Does that culture press into you? Or do you press back with Christ into that culture? Is your culture look more like Jesus because you are there? Or do you just blend in and you look like the rest of your culture? In this case, Abram and Sarah just blended in. And they said, oh, if it's good for everybody else, we'll do it too. That must be God's plan for us. We need to help God out right here. And remember, Moses is writing this account as the people are getting ready to go into the promised land. And he's telling them all that they need to know. And there's a parallel here between what Abram and Sarah are doing and what Adam and Eve did. Sarah's action was parallel to that of Eve. We see that Abram listened to his wife here, just as Adam listened to his wife. Sarah took Hagar, just as Eve took the fruit. Sarah gave her to her husband, just as Eve gave the fruit to Adam. And in both both cases, we see the man just sitting back, idly sitting back and willingly to go along with whatever is happening. Not taking any, uh, not having any input, not taking any leadership. Not saying, maybe we should think about this. Maybe we should seek the Lord on this. And that's the biggest problem. Abram didn't stop to seek the Lord. There's nothing here that says that he said, you know, maybe we should pray about this. Maybe I should go out under these stars that God has promised 
that these are going to be as many as my descendants. And I should say, Lord, we've been waiting a long time. We have an idea. Is this maybe the best thing we should do? They didn't even think about it. They just did what came natural to them, whatever came into their mind. And so they proceeded with this plan, and immediately this tension rises and and the fallout begins in verse 4. Hagar conceives, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. This plan for, for Hagar to become a surrogate backfired, and it caused everybody to start turning against one another. See, Abram and Sarah had treated her like an inanimate object, just a baby-making machine. She's just here to serve a purpose. She's not a human. She's just here for our ends. And then she became proudly pregnant. And because she had succeeded where Sarah had not, she began to kind of strut her stuff. The verb that says looked with contempt could also be translated dishonors. And that goes back to Genesis 12 when God promised, He who dishonors you, I will also dishonor. But it's also used of the Egyptian treatment of Israelites in slavery. And so Hagar cast these haughty looks Sarah's way and she struts and she begins to subtly take advantage of the fact that I've been able to produce a child. You can't. And Abram's attention is on me and not on you. And his joy is in me and it's not in you. And that flew all over Sarai. And so as soon as she experiences mistreatment, she takes it out on Abram in verses 5 and 6. Men, I don't have to tell you, this was a bad marriage day in their household. This was like the worst marriage fight you could ever have. This takes the cake for husband-wife arguments. Uh, Sarah turned to Abram and she said, this is all your fault. You're the one that, that made her pregnant and now look what's happened to me. This is your fault, Abram. She lost respect for Abram and she called on God to be the judge between the two of them. This expression in verse 5 where she says, may the Lord judge between you and me. That is not an expression of let's pray together and see what God does. (laughs) That's you're such a rotten person that I think you're going to knife me in the back. So I'm going to count on God to get you before you get me. That's not that's not a good marriage day. She says, I don't trust you enough that I can't keep my eyes on you, so I'm going to trust that God's going to get you. This this made me think of, there's a a proverb, Proverbs 21, 9, that says, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And I think Abram was thinking that at the moment. (laughs) But, you know, he was not any better. He was absolutely no better. He blamed Sarah, and he threw it right back in her lap and basically said, this is your doing. This is your problem. You fix it. She's your servant. You deal with it. You control her. You chose. This was your plan. You came up with it. Now, she's your servant. Do with her whatever you want. Why are you blaming me? This is your mess to fix. And so Sarah responds by humbling Hagar. She went from being a servant to being a wife to now she's been demoted back to being a servant. She reduced her status and she treated her as such. She put her under her thumb. She... She, it says that she mistreated her. She dealt harshly with her. She may have beaten her. But it was so rough that Hagar ran away. Their home fell apart. Their marriage, has they've lost respect for, with each other. They've blamed each other. Things have gotten ugly and nasty. And that's what happens when we stop trusting God. 
That's what happens when we turn to our own devices. That's what happens when we turn to our own plans and we, we take matters into our own hands and we force things in our own human strength. Amen. And if you, if you see here, nobody seemed to notice that Hagar was actually missing. Or if they noticed, they didn't really care. She fled and they're just kind of left there. This young pregnant woman with the dangers that she would face in the wilderness um, and in, in a lot of ways, she was the victim in all of this, right? She is the victim of their lack of faith. She didn't ask for any of this. She's, she was their servant that they obtained in Egypt when, when Abram was disobedient the first time. She's been brought along with them. And then all of a sudden, she's marched off to a wedding ceremony with an 86-year-old groom. And here she is, and she's pregnant. But... Abram and Sarah didn't seem to care about Hagar, but God did care about her. And I want us, I want us to see that in the next passage, that God provided for her in her distress. And Hagar was the one that had the faithful response. And we see this all throughout Scripture, right? The people that we expect would have faithful responses to, to, to God, and especially to Jesus in the New Testament, are not always the people that do. We think about the rich young ruler, right? He, he said, I, I've kept the law. But he didn't have the faithful response to be willing to give up what he had and follow Jesus with all that he was. Hagar had a faithful response. So I want to read, uh, starting in verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Birlahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So God sees Hagar. God hasn't abandoned her. And I want to chase a rabbit here just for one second because I find this interesting in the text and then I want to deal with the rest of this. But when you see that the angel of the Lord here, who is this angel of the Lord? I think that this is the first time that we see in Scripture this phrase used, the angel of the Lord. And if, if you uh, compare the appearance of this angel of the Lord to others throughout Scripture, I believe that this is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, come to meet her in her time of need. And the reason I say that is the angel says things about himself that, that a created being would not say. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring. He doesn't say God will. He says, I will. In the Old Testament, we see other times of the, the pre-incarnate Christ revealed. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and the one walking with them. They're called theophanies. So we see another one in Genesis 18 when the Lord, in a couple of chapters, when the Lord appears to Abram. And this word angel can also be translated messenger. And Jesus is called the messenger of the covenant in Malachi 3.1. So 
Whether you, wherever you come down on that, that's where I come down on it. I think it's interesting. I think it's, it's another occurrence of just like Jesus meets the woman at the well in John 4, a woman who we would not expect to be one that becomes a worshiper of Jesus. I think he meets Hagar at the well as well, and, and she becomes a worshiper. And he finds her when she's running back towards Egypt and instructs her to return to her mistress and submit to her. And then he gives her a promise for the future, for herself and also for her son, Ishmael. And his name means God hears because the Lord has heard her, her cry of distress. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is going to be hunky-dory and we're just going to you know, wind up in a Disney ending here because we know the rest of the history of Ishmael, right? We're going to see later on in Genesis, there will be strife. There's strife today because of Ishmael. The Middle East is a mess today because of all the descendants of him um, that that's that today there's still, you know, all that's going on between Israel and so many other Arab nations. It's still going on. And yet God saw Hagar and he he provided for her and she had a response of faith in verses 13. She called on the name of the Lord. That's that means she worshiped him in that time. That's not just saying she prayed to him, but she worshiped him. She knew that her knowledge of God depending, depended on God's initiative in first reaching out to her and calling on her and providing for her. And I think it's interesting, she's the only person that we see in the Old Testament who has ever given a name to God. She says, you are the God of seeing. For I have truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. This, uh, she named this well, Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. So God had seen her in her distress and God provided for her and for her son. And in verses 15 and 16, we get kind of the epilogue for this with the, the summing up of all of it. It says, and Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Alan Ross notes on this passage that Sarah's name is not in this when, when the son is born. You know, if, if they had followed through her plan, it would have said she bore a son for Abram and Sarah. But her name's not on the birth certificate. It's just Abram's name. And I think part of that is God's keeping of his covenant that he, he had already told Abram, you will have a son not from another line, but from your own line with your own wife. But God did bear a son for Abram. And she conf- he confirmed this name that God had given to Hagar for him. That God has heard um, her, her distress and God has answered. But that doesn't, again, it doesn't solve the issue. It doesn't solve the problem. This problem is still there. And life is never going to be the same again in this household. These women are never going to get along. Abram's never going to be able to make them reconcile. And we'll see that the conflict escalate in a few chapters in Genesis 21 when Isaac, the son of the promise, is born. And Hagar is eventually going to be put out. And again, almost her and her son almost die, and God is going to provide for them again. The account concludes in verse 21, in chapter 21, 20 and 21. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife from him from the lands of Egypt. 
So Ishmael goes back to his roots. They go back geographically, and he goes back to the descendants of Ham and not Shem. And then finally, we're going to see in Genesis 25 that Ishmael is going to father 12 tribal rulers who become a spiritual antithesis to the 12 tribes of Egypt, of Israel. And the account is going to end, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. They settled over against all his kinsmen. And so again, that conflict continues to this day. So what do we learn from this passage? What do we do with this when we walk out of here today? Well, there's, a, there's about five things that I want to draw your attention to um, as we think about how does this apply to us and what do we do with this uh, when we go to work tomorrow, when we go to school tomorrow, in our own families. The first thing is that when we try to do for ourselves what only God can do, it always leads to disaster. One of the biggest problems that Abram and Sarah had was they said, well, God's promised this. He hasn't done it, so it must be up to us. We got to figure out a plan. We got to make this happen. We got to do it. God's not getting the job done, so he needs my help. And God had a plan. He had told them what his plan was. He hadn't changed his plan. And his timing was not yet complete. In Galatians, I want to look real quickly at Galatians chapter 3 and 4. Because Paul picks up on this whole episode in Galatians 3 and 4, and he applies it to salvation. The question becomes, is our salvation and right standing with God through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone? Or do we help ourselves? Is there something that we can do to help God make us right? And the Galatians had been convinced by false teachers. They had started right with Paul and the gospel, but then they had been convinced that they needed to add to the gospel. They needed to keep the law as well in order to be good Christians. And so beginning in chapter 3, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you? So by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that Christ Jesus, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul applies this whole episode to our salvation and says, you can't add anything to your faith in Christ that makes you more acceptable in God. You can't turn back to following the law and that's going to get you in right standing with God. That's actually going to damn you if you turn back to the law because you can't keep the law 
you are impossible. It's impossible for you to keep the law. And so like Abram, they had begun in faith and then they had turned to their own plan. They had turned to their own merit. And then in chapter four, Paul contrasts Abram's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, as two ways of pursuing God. He says that starting in verse 23, he says that um, Hagar's son Ishmael is, is born according to the flesh. And that they tried to get God's promised blessing by their own strength without relying on God's supernatural enablement. And that's exactly what the people did originally when the law was given in, at Mount Sinai. Instead of humbling themselves and trusting God to obey his commandments, Israel said confidently, all the, wor- all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they didn't turn their hearts toward God. And they didn't seek his help in obeying them. And they turned away. They didn't depend on him. They turned to their own resources. And just like the, the history we see throughout the history of Israel, they failed miserably over and over again. In, in chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says, if I can find it, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. This is a direct attack on the Judaizers, the, the ones that had come to the Galatians church and said, well, that's good that you've got the gospel, but now you need to add to it. You need to, do, you need to believe that, but you need to keep the law too. And they were seeking to enslave the Galatians who were free in Christ and tell them they had to keep the law. And Paul says, don't follow them because they will make you sons of Abram, but they're going to make you Ishmael. They're not going to make you Isaac. You'll be a slave to the law, not an heir of the promise. Because all that they could produce on their own was a son who would not be the heir. And all that Israel and Galatians and anyone else who has tried to keep the law perfectly has ever produced is legalism that inherits nothing. I think so many times as Christians, we operate that way too, though. Even post-salvation, we believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. And yet there's so many times that we seek to earn God's favor. There's so many times that we think, if I only do this, then God will, will truly love me. God will truly accept me. Maybe when life is not as fruitful as we'd like it to be, or we're not as accomplishing as much as we'd like to, or we feel like we're in a midlife crisis, or whatever is going on, and we say, I've got to do more, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, and then God will accept me. Have we done enough to be saved? No, we'll never do enough to be saved. But that's not the point. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. Jesus' righteousness has been secured for us. He has done for us for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's the good news of the gospel, right? That Jesus came. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He died a criminal's death that we deserved. In our place and for our sin, he was resurrected in a way that we could never be resurrected. So that by faith in him, that we have the life and the righteousness of him that is credited to us. And so today... We need to rest in God's provision. We need to rest in knowing that what he has done on our behalf, if we have believed in him, is enough. And there's nothing that we need to add to it today. There's only one way that we get made right with God, and that is the same way that Abram was made right with God, is he believed God, and God credited him as righteousness. And this has great, great commission implications for us as well. This is not just in our own salvation. This is how we share the gospel, individually and corporately. Jesus told us that he told Peter, I tell you, Peter, 
on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right? Matthew 16, 18. He promised he was going to build his church. In Matthew 24, 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is going to get the job done. Whether he uses us or not, he's going to get the job done. The great part is that we get to be part of that. We get to be obedient. We get to celebrate in participating in that. But God's not wringing his, heaven, his hands up in heaven saying, Well, if, if, if Mitch doesn't share the gospel today with six people, I don't know how this is going to happen. Because he's big enough to get it done himself. And he's promised that he's going to accomplish his purposes. The second thing I want us to see um, quickly is that we're going to learn from this passage is, is, is not to take pride in ourselves. Um, real quickly, we want to focus on Hagar. Her, She was the innocent victim in this in many ways, but her arrogance kind of lit the fuse that touched off all the fireworks. She acted in a way that sometimes we act when we forget that everything that we have comes from God. Everything that we have is a gift. And there's no ability that we have. There's no financial reward that we have. There's nothing that you can do in the workplace. There's nothing that you can do athletically or uh, relationally or whatever that is not a gift of God. Everything that we have is a gift of God. And so there's no reason for us to boast in our own abilities or in our own um, wealth or anything that we have. If God has not given it to us, we wouldn't have it. So we need to be humble and we need to give God the glory in all that we do. A third thing that I think we need to see and we see throughout this passage is that we need to ask God for direction. Particularly when we come to a a difficult place when we don't know exactly what to do. Our first response should not be, well, let, let me trust in myself. What can I think of here? Our first response should be, what does God say? What has God said about this already? How can I seek him in his word? How can I hear by his indwelling Holy Spirit? How can I be encouraged and hear from him through the church, through people in my radical life group? How can I hear from the Lord? Not just, all right, I got a plan, let's do it. The old saying, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission is not a good approach to following God. Um, One of my missionary heroes, Hudson Taylor, once said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And I think that we have seen that evident throughout the years, uh, as, even in our own church here, that God's work done in God's way will never lack supply. So we need to trust him for that, and we need to ask him for that. And there's a great promise found for us in James 1.5. He tells us that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a bedrock promise that you can count on. So when you don't know what to do, ask God. A fourth thing that we can see from this passage is that God sees and that he is always with us. God saw Abram and Sarah. God saw Hagar and he saw Ishmael within her. God sees you and me too. He sees us in every one of life's circumstances. He sees us at our best. He sees us at our worst. He sees us when we are facing need. He sees how hard it is when you're trying to be faithful and please him. And there's that one besetting sin that just seems to get you. He sees you when you're overwhelmed and you're caring for your kids or your spouse or your aging parents. He sees you when you're challenged at work or he sees you're challenged at school or in your marriage. He sees how hard it can be to live on your income. He sees you when loneliness eats away at you. He sees you. He cares. And God is with us and he will help us. 
And God is with us in the hard places. And when he is with us in the hard places, his will for us is not for us to run away. It's to stay and fight. It's to stay and persevere. Because so often as we stay and persevere, he builds our character. He prepares us for what is next. He prepares us for that blessing that is coming down the road that we're not not ready for at the moment. So God sees us and he is with us. And then the last thing that I think we see in this passage is we need to wait on the Lord. We need to learn to wait on the Lord. And waiting is a very hard thing to do, right? We want instant download. We want everything to be instant. We want overnight delivery. We want Amazon Prime. We want, we want it now, right? And yet Abram had waited 10 years when this passage started on God, and he was going to wait another 13 years. And they were going to have to wait and trust that God was going to be faithful to his promise. But it's usually in waiting that God does some of his best work in us. Scripture encourages us repeatedly to, to wait on the Lord. Psalm thirty-three twenty says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm twenty-seven fourteen says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Isaiah forty thirty-one. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When we are forced to wait, sometimes by God's plan, we're forced to wait. God helps us acquire an appreciation for the blessings that are to come. And while we wait, waiting is not just sitting back on your haunches and saying, okay, God, you show up. Waiting is being faithful in the meantime to do what we know God has commanded us to do. And as we wait, God is going to build that maturity so that when the fulfillment comes, we're prepared to enjoy that to its fullest. So as we wait today, we want to do so in a posture of worship. I want to ask the band to come up as we prepare to, to respond and to sing as a response to God. Because a, a posture of worship is always appropriate, whether we are celebrating what God has done in us or whether we're waiting for him to do the next thing. So would you stand with us and we'll sing in response to God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that your word to us does not change. Thank you for the examples of your faithfulness that we see repeatedly in the lives of people like Abram and Sarai. Help us to trust you today because of your past action to them, because of your action in our own lives, and because of your future promises to us. Help us to know, help us to hear and obey, and in the meantime, help us to worship you with all that we have. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.